this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to another edition of the in focus podcast i'm your host g sampath on december 18th in montreal canada 188 governments that are parties to the convention on biological diversity agreed on a new framework to halt species extinction and loss of biodiversity known as the kunming montreal global biodiversity framework it sets out four goals for 2050 and 23 targets for 2030 to ensure that 30% of land inland water marine and coastal ecosystems are protected at present only 17% of terrestrial and 10% of marine ecosystems are protected so how realistic are these goals how will the signatories be monitored to ensure that they are on course to meet their targets and since conservation and restoration initiatives will not come cheap what is the total estimated cost and how will the funds be raised especially for developing countries we explore all these questions in this episode of in focus and joining us today is kanchi kohli from the center for policy research new delhi kanchi welcome back to in focus thank you look forward to the conversation so uh, to start with i wanted to go a little bit back in history before this agreement of the december 18 there was another agreement signed in aichi japan in 2010 12 years ago can you talk a little bit about that agreement and how that worked and take us sort of quickly through how that led to the montreal moment so to speak this month yeah so i think 2010 was a very important uh, year for the convention on biological diversity where uh, two very significant uh, developments took place one was the nagoya protocol on uh, uh, access and benefit sharing and the other was the ig targets uh, which you just spoke about and i think these were these targets were important because you know they were other than the aspects of uh, fair and equitable sharing benefits this was really focusing on the need for reducing deforestation by half or curbing pollution uh, so that ecosystems are not harmed or you know uh, conserving land and uh, indian waters and oceans so i think it it was a very it was a very important set of targets uh, which were which were uh taking the focus on the large uh, reasons or the reasons why biodiversity is facing the harm and de- degradation the ig targets you know since then have uh, you know the in in many ways the promise uh, of the ig targets in fact uh, as, even as uh, the cbd secretariat or uh, or, the, or uh, agencies like unep have pointed out none of these targets were entirely fully met and you know the reasons um, that have been cited in various analysis that have been done is basically they were not specific there was uh, also not adequate funding or in in many ways uh, the uh, the national buy in for the ig targets didn't go beyond the you know all the the assurances of the environment ministers at the uh, at the convention so i since then then there was a whole since the ig targets for 2010 to 2020 from 2020 onwards and just before that there was a discussion of the uh, of developing a global biodiversity framework which took a back seat because of the pandemic and that's why we have uh, what you what would be have now as the global biodiversity framework uh, which has been agreed upon in montreal okay so this uh, kunming montreal global biodiversity framework or gbf uh, as it's called 
I mean, so in a sense, you would say it's a step forward from the HE biodiversity targets. Yes, absolutely. It it actually builds on uh, many important themes that were uh, highlighted at, uh, as part of the HE targets, and I think. Uh, I mean, it's debatable how much they've been able to uh, take it forward or not, or or whether or the fact that the IG targets themselves were inadequate in some way. So if you keep that aside, and uh, this the you, the GBF definitely builds upon uh, a lot of the discourse that was taking place. Okay, can you give us a quick overview of the GBF's goals and targets, and what what exactly is the difference between a target and a goal? I mean, to the layperson, they all sound very similar. Uh, so I think uh, I think the the uh, global biodiversity framework basically, you know, there are there are first. I think it has some underlying assumptions. It it believes that I think it relies on the fact that specific targets and lack of finance were uh, very significant factors that uh, that contributed to the failure of the IG targets. And I think in many ways, the GBF is also looking to address both while, uh, you know, bringing in some specificity to uh, what what is um, what what countries are expected to respond to. Can, can you give us an idea of what the IG targets were like? Uh, so like, for instance, there were broad targets like, uh, you know, uh, reducing deforestation by half or curbing pollution. So when it, when it spoke about curbing pollution, it didn't really necessarily say that how much it should be or where it should be. But in the case of, uh, in the, case of the global biodiversity framework, uh, if one has to agree that by putting specific numbers or specific uh, target years, uh, that would lead to, or, or you know, pinning down responsibilities. Who is supposed to be putting in the funding? If those are the factors, can that can let lead to uh, addressing biodiversity loss? Then the global biodiversity framework uh, is needs to be recognized as one space where this this has been attempted to do so. So basically, the framework also. I think what is important is just like in the Nagoya Protocol. I think the this framework also um, uh, basically uh, centralizes the rights of uh, indigenous and local communities. It uh, it talks about a human rights uh, approach. So I think it makes a lot of those uh, important sounds which are important in a global treaty of today's times. It should not be um, uh, you know ignored. But at the same time, it also talks about countries' right to development. It also talks about national priorities being important. So I think how these these are going to get reconciled is going to be a huge challenge. And we've seen that in other convention and, uh, conventions and discussions, international discussions as well. But what is also significant about the uh, Kunming Montreal uh, GBF is how it tries to bring together uh, themes of um, sustainable development, so the SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals, biodiversity, and climate change. So, in many ways, the framing is that all these three needs to be need to be looked at together, and and uh, and the goals and targets that come out of it, then you know, basically talk uh, talk about it, um, uh, by, by seeing this convergence. Very simply, the difference is that uh, there's a 2050 vision. On, and there's a 2030 mission as part of the global biodiversity framework, and uh, it's basically the four goals are towards the uh, the 2050 vision, which is basically talking about ecosystem integrity, sustainable manage sustainable management of biodiversity, increasing uh, fair and equitable sharing of benefits, and increasing finance uh, for biodiversity conservation. The targets are more specifically towards uh, 2030. You know, and there are these 20, 23 targets that are organized under broadly three themes. 
uh, which is if you if you see it as in terms of um, the first first theme is about reducing threats. The second uh, theme is about uh, tools that are required to do so. So all the planning, policy, mainstreaming, biodiversity sort of tools. And the third is um, and including finance. And uh, sorry, that's the second theme. And the the third theme is about how uh, you could actually enhance sustainable livelihoods where uh, through which uh, there can be a reduction of loss of, of biodiversity as well as uh, all the planning instruments can be used for uh, ensuring the that people's needs are uh, are met through this whole process so there are a whole bunch of details uh, i don't think we have time to get into it right now but in it is under the reducing threats to biodiversity is that 13 to 30 sort of basically by 2030 at least 30% of terrestrial inland water and coastal coastal and marine areas especially areas of particular importance need to be protected and countries have committed to uh, to something like that right so some african countries especially on the last day when the agreement was going to be uh, finalized i think most notably congo had some serious objections to the draft, uh, which they claim was sort of pushed through. So what exactly uh, were their objections? Could you talk a little bit about uh, what they had to say? Yeah, I think, uh, see, I think the what we need to understand in terms of the kinds of objections that were coming up as part of this negotiation and has come up in other negotiations is also the inherent contradictions that are part of what what are the outcomes itself. So as I was saying earlier, the the you know, the right to develop so it's three or five or six kinds of these issues. One is, you know, this thing about the right to develop and the need to conserve. The other is, uh, you know, how do you actually go about what what are going to be these implications of uh, what is being proposed? Uh, is, are more and more enclosures going to be created uh, in the name of uh, climate change or conservation? How do you actually talk about uh, strengthening law and policy uh, at national levels when national uh, aspirations are talking about something else. Uh, and the the uh, larger issue that was being also raised by countries like Congo is about finance. I mean, how do you actually talk about developed countries that have that have a larger footprint on biodiversity, both in terms of its destruction and extraction? You know, are they are they responsible to actually put in much more funding so that developing economies and least developed nations can actually be uh, compensated for or, or more money can be put in for conservation of biodiversity as well. So at one point of time, it was it was seeming like that, you know, the uh, there will be, be no agreement because of this opposition, which was at, at sub- subsequently dropped saying that it is the text is not reading like uh, developed countries have the responsibility uh, to take a bigger responsibility and put, put a larger share of the funding as part of it. This even after till uh, six, um, the next COP is going to be continuously being uh, a running theme that will need to be discussed in terms of should developed countries actually have much more responsibility and put in much more finance and support uh, for protection of biodiversity. Right. No, this this actually uh, was a theme we also saw in the climate change uh, conference in Egypt uh, some time back. So uh, there, here there is also another angle uh, many critics have pointed out saying that whereas the bulk of biodiversity which is there and which is under threat is in the developing world, the bulk of funding, the resources to sort of invest in preserving them is in the developed world. And we also have the third pole of this dynamic which is uh, the history of colonialism where the, the countries which are developed today have gone into the third world uh, countries and uh, created a lot of biodiversity destruction 
which is there as history that is well acknowledged. So given these three aspects, uh, shouldn't there be a more explicit uh, writing into the agreement of responsibility, especially financial responsibility for the, for the developed countries in terms of funding biodiversity if they're serious about it? Yeah, I think it's twofold. One is about how much funding are you putting in for conservation projects or restoration projects? And how much is how much our economy is trying to do, whether it's uh, the, the developed or the developing economy is trying to do to reduce uh, harm? I think those are both questions that we need to look at. And in, the, in case of the Convention on Biological Diversity, the the US is still not a party, uh, and I think that is remains a big question because even if you see don't see it in terms of large large scale land use change and those kinds of projects, if you see the a maximum R and D interest whether it's seeds or pharmaceutical industries and etc., countries like U.S. actually have a huge role to play. So, you know, all the investments in uh, in certain kinds of, uh, uh, you know, projects uh, or scientific developments which may have uh, impact on, on biodiversity, I think those are all important things to consider. No, I'm just curious. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. The U.S., uh, as you said, is not part of this entire uh, this convention, but they were still part of the negotiating process. How does it work? I mean, you're not part of it, and yes, to us, you are there influencing the draft and equations, everything. Yeah. So I think I, I, as as a, I think as a person who has not followed it so closely, I may not be able to do, uh, you know, speak about this uh, in detail. But the fact is, the U.S. until I mean, has has not uh, has not signed on to the convention. To the best of my knowledge, I think I have to. Yeah. Okay. Now, uh, of course, according to what what one can find uh, uh, in various uh, sites to do with the UN and and related NGOs on uh, in this domain, I mean, the estimates range from six hundred to eight hundred billion dollars as the annual requirement for reversing the losses of biodiversity. And I think under the agreement, the figure being touted is that they will probably hope to raise about $200 billion, uh, which still is both ambitious and far short of uh, the uh, the requirement of $600-$800 billion. So, uh, so, so in, this, uh, in this scenario, how do you see uh, uh, this whole uh, agreement sort of going forward? No, I think, see, I, there has been this, this running theme of do we have adequate funds to be able to take affirmative action at a, at a national level? And I think even countries like India has, have really pushed for, uh, you know, developing developed nations as well as private investors to invest in, you know, climate mitigation or biodiversity protection. So I think it's been a running theme, theme across various uh, international di- discussions for a while now. If you see the experience of uh, how how finance has been rallied, it is not it's not so encouraging that all this money is going to be leveraged very easily. In fact, India is all uh, India in one of the interviews. I think uh, the minister gave the minister of environment actually gave as part of this uh, you know COP COP fifteen discussion was that one of the biggest uh, contributors for biodiversity conservation remains the global environment facility. And, and India is also uh, put out signals that we need much more domestic funding, you know, domestic private sector funding to for, for uh, biodiversity conservation within the country. So there is, if you see the history of being able to, uh, um, you know, rally around funds, it doesn't seem very encouraging. Uh, but I think there also, we need to keep beginning to bring back larger questions of, should biodiversity conservation only be relying on funding as an imperative 
uh, and uh, although there is, it's an it's an important uh, narrative but should that actually be dominating the entire set of targets and and should we be looking at other mechanisms by which that can be achieved such as what like without funding how will this thing move for instance there are there are there are ways so there are funding is required to to be able to subsidize uh, you know uh, sub- subsidize conservation projects or funding may be required to set up new r&d etc but there are already existing um, you know uh, practices that we, we may have nationally that we may be able to adopt to say okay should we should we change our economic policy in certain way to so that more more and more land is under uh, is brought under um, an economic policy that actually enhances biodiversity conservation or for instance if you see the goals about uh, the targets that talk about uh, mainstreaming biodiversity into planning uh, all those actually don't require funding at all you know so i think those there are many ways that by which or for instance enhancing the potential of biodiversity based industry within the country itself uh seeing seeing the potential in those kinds of things where there could be partnerships in, uh, with indigenous and local communities and other kinds of mechanisms that help india achieve the targets that are not necessarily relying or entirely dependent on funding domestically or internationally right of course yeah i mean changes in economic policy is something that that would need to be looked at at some point now coming back to what you said earlier about uh sustainability as one of the three poles of this thing you also spoke about how along with biodiversity protection and climate change these three together are uh, are something which need to go hand in hand now there is another philosophy which says that you need to have a hands off approach to protection of wild species and diversity because they have their own value and you cannot necessarily be looking at them as some kind of a resource that you use for profit so this particular convention this december agreement which sort of talks about things like genetic resources is this recasting biodiversity as a resource to be exploited rather than something to be protected because it's got its own value and in this sense is there a shift in conservation philosophy that we're seeing because on the other hand we are also talking about relying more on private investment and private investment means you're looking to do something for profit so does biodiversity conservation have to be profitable in order for private investment to come in and therefore you need sustainable exploitation of resources is that the new shift in thinking see i think we need to the convention on biological diversity or even say for that matter the rio declaration i think had a very strong anthropocentric lens uh, the idea of sustainable development itself is very anthropocentric which means i mean it it puts the human being in the at the center Uh, and the human being in the center did, did talk about conservation and environment protection but it was all from the point of view of use and i think uh, we the cbd very largely viewed biodiversity as a resource because uh, it the three objectives the first one was conservation the second one was sustainable use and the third one has been you know equitable sharing of benefits arising of that use so use and seeing biodiversity as a resource was always a running theme for the convention on biological diversity which you, which gets reflected in india's biological diversity act you see that as an important theme because you see what kinds of protocols get more importance what kinds of mechanisms get more importance in in global and national uh, processes so in many ways so it's it's not surprising that 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 I, the idea of biodiversity as a resource gets embedded even more 
and i think uh, there is a huge business interest to actually embed it uh, within within these international conventions because it also gives legitimacy to the, uh, to that business uh, we actually explored some of these these themes in uh, in in our book uh, uh, in in 2016 and there have been there are some interesting chapters as part of that book and it's, it's called business interest in and the environmental crisis because it is assumed that biodiversity or forest is not in these conventions is reflected for its own self uh, or or has its own it has its own meaning but not but in in the framing of these protocols or in the framing of the laws that follow from it you see a completely uh, human anthropocentric arrangements it's about when you access it when you use it when should you protect it when should you leave it so you know the actor uh, the human beings are a very very strong actor uh, in, in this entire uh, process right i mean i mean not just anthropocentric i mean i would i don't know i, I don't know if you'd agree but to me it seems like it's a one particular kind of uh, anthropocentrism which is to do with homo economicus kind of anthropocentrism because if you i mean i was looking at some of these clauses and there's a lot of stuff on eliminating subsidies you know i mean that's something which has been coming from the eu and from the us towards countries like india for a long time you know get rid of your subsidies now here you want you are telling these countries to get rid of subsidies for protecting biodiversity and so on and that does seem to be like a, a business interest there also attached to it in terms of you know uh, why who benefits if uh, developing countries eliminate uh, subsidies and also on the other hand there are uh, critics who have said that this convention doesn't give hard numerical targets like for example with with the carbon emissions and offsets there are very clear targets here how do we ensure that big multinationals who are into mining in africa or whatever like they won't carry on with business as usual for instance you know if there are no targets uh, on which their activity can be measured on year on year basis yeah and i think i mean you're right i think these are things that would need to be uh, i think negotiated much more you know in the future because i think this is something that is not desirable by many developing nations and developed nations so both investor countries and recipient countries with where there is a uh, resource to be extracted both sets of uh, countries are actually objecting to something like this uh, on these subsidies and that's why it was very much uh, a very hot topic at, as part of the uh, uh, gbf discussions as well you know that you don't have hard numerical targets it would help it would definitely help to actually pinpoint and bind but i'm not sure how much uh, it's it will be possible given the nature of the uh, of the uh, of the agreements which actually are 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 talking about national priorities also being important. So I think you know these these inherent contradictions within the the framework itself, which these frameworks are uh, hope that countries will be able to uh, balance out. They land up being in contradiction with each other, and which is likely to be with these subsidies, whether it's pesticides or pol- or or increased pollutions or, or pollution, all of which are harming biodiversity or. for the mat for that matter the kinds of national prior priority setting that actually sets uh, large infrastructure and other projects in areas which are very critically important for biodiversity now these contradictions are going to remain uh, a, a hot topic for negotiation even in the uh, upcoming uh, biodiversity cops right are there any broadly agreed upon metrics or indicators for measuring biodiversity like how do you measure biodiversity it's a very it's like theoretical 
concept yes i mean i think uh, ecologists have come up with some tools through which uh, you know models can be applied to talk about it from the point of view so like the the, the model that even the fr- framework and lots of other international conventions talk about uh, is the uh, payment for ecosystem services where each service rendered from an ecosystem which includes biodiversity as one of the matrix is um, you know you you can you can put a uh, you put certain values of it and that becomes a transaction cost uh, either for conservation or extraction so there are tools to the best of my understanding they're not like they're not globally applicable or acceptable and not without uh, it's not like everybody is everybody agrees to those tools but there are definitely models that have been developed through which valuation has been possible uh, but the, that as i said the, that valuation needs to be tested in policy in planning to see what could be those implications for instance i don't know whether you know those those models of uh, ecological planning uh, really take into account that when you actually secure areas or create enclosures what happens to prevailing rights uh, so that loss and gain uh, calculation is not there so i think so many of those things i think are still still developing uh, they are those tools are available but that they're not without critique and not without responses right we're running out of time uh, kanchi so one final question before we wrap up so we spoke about a lot of these contradictions uh, between developed and developing and and the lack of hard numerical targets and of course one of the one more uh, aspect of these uh, dichotomies uh, which struck me was that unlike say uh, climate change where it does make complete sense to have a global framework to tackle climate change because you know it's the entire planet's atmosphere we're talking about and the oceans we're talking about many people have pointed out that biodiversity is actually local you know there are specific ecosystems in specific locations which need protection and their action has to happen at the local level so i don't know to what extent a global framework uh, is going to help drive this process uh, or is there some other sort of process and an agendas at work and that is on one side but so going forward what do you think are the biggest challenges as of today to protect biodiversity see i think what you what you said was the local versus global i think um, you know even though biodiversity is local uh, the interests in biodiversity and biological resources and genetic material or traditional knowledge is all global i mean you know it's it's you 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 can actually go and pick up any a mushroom anywhere in the across the world and serve it on any table across the world so i think those are those are very important things that the local is very deeply connected with the global so it's important to have some global principles uh, as part of a framework but uh, the fact is that for na- for national governments to actually uh, take forward those those principles the national priorities become a very crucial uh, aspect and i think that's where one of some of the biggest challenges lie because both developed nations and aspirational economies like india rely on big infrastructure projects which have huge stress on uh, biological diversity and bio, and by bio, and biodiversity based livelihoods similarly big pharma or big seed industries do rely on you know uh, genetic material and traditional knowledge to come up with new products that are Uh, brought into the market so these are so big business large infrastructure projects which are very deeply connected with economic policies are very crucial for uh, you know to be able to address and that's why there are there are goals and targets that talk about uh, bringing in uh, mainstreaming biodiversity for instance there is a there's a target that talks about you know mainstreaming bi- biodiversity in impact assessments 
uh, countries like India don't have that uh, at this point of time. So these remain challenges. And, and then the final thing I want to say is that, you know, uh, basically the other big challenge remains that the importance of species and what species and what knowledge is important at what given point of time is completely driven by uh, its commercial value uh, and, and demand for consumption. So the demand and supply logic is completely skewed when it comes to uh, the protection of, uh, of biodiversity and biodiversity-based knowledge uh, completely. Uh, in fact, custodian-based approaches that balance culture, ecology, and economy has uh, has always been an unrealized potential of the biodiversity convention and which you see in the uh, biodiversity framework as well. Right. I think uh, you identified uh, the two key factors here uh, which are at at play wherever biodiversity is under some kind of threat. Of course, big business and large infrastructure projects that happen without adequate uh, environment impact assessments and so on. But at the same time, a big business is also expected to cough up uh, some kind of funding uh, when we talk of private sector involvement in saving biodiversity. So there is a contradiction here as well. Uh, we need to sort of uh, think a little bit more about these uh, aspects of the problem. Thank you so much, Kanchi, for joining us today and sharing your thoughts and insights on this convention and this agreement. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you, Santa. Thank you. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.